Hello and welcome to Within Normal Limits, COPIC's podcast featuring discussions of patient safety in the modern healthcare world. I'm your host, Eric Zacharias, a risk manager and patient safety consultant at COPIC. I'm also our director of medical education and on clinical faculty at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. I'm a practicing internal medicine physician, and I want to thank you for listening and helping us further COPIC's mission of improving medicine in the communities we serve. Now, an exciting legal disclaimer. Uh, information provided in this podcast should not be relied upon for personal, medical, legal, or financial decisions, and you should consult an appropriate professional for specific advice that pertains to your situation. Healthcare providers should exercise their professional judgment in connection with the provision of healthcare services. The information contained in this podcast is not intended to be, nor is it, a substitute for medical diagnosis, treatment, advice, or judgment relative to a patient's specific condition. Thank you for joining us. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to With the Normal Limits. Joining me today from uh, Minnesota Medical Association, among other places, are Tori Barr and uh, Katie Stengel. We're going to talk about uh, some work that they're doing around transitions in care from pediatrics to adults, uh, as well as the ECHO model, and of course, a little bit about their background. So, uh, Tori and Katie, welcome to Within Normal Limits. Thanks for having us today. Thank you. And I'm going to start with a little bit of background, because that's what I always do. Uh, Katie, let me start with you. Uh, tell me uh, where you're from and what got you into healthcare. Sure. Uh, my name is Katie Stangle. I am from central Minnesota in a town called Buckman, so in the middle of nowhere. Uh, the thing that got me into healthcare, I guess, is uh, kind of a career shift, looking for something that was closer to home. Um, I started working with Project Echo projects such as this one probably five, six years ago, and it was a good um, opportunity to kind of broaden my horizons and learn a whole new different way of life, I would say, and offer good work-life balance and was an interesting field. Great. What do you like to do outside of healthcare when you're not coordinating projects? Sure. Uh, probably my main thing would be spend time with my family. Uh, I have a three and one-year-old, my husband. We love spending time outside, any kind of outdoor activities. Oh, just hanging out in Minnesota, I guess. Yeah, sounds fun. I got some cousins in Minnesota, so shout out to the Carlson clan if y'all are listening. Uh, I love going up there and visiting. We fish, we go to the boundary. I, I always have a great time in Minnesota. So, although I have to admit, I've never been to the fine city of it, but maybe. Uh, maybe <laughs> yeah, there's not here. Uh, all right. Well, we're going to take you off the Buckman Chamber of Commerce. And uh, Tori, well, what, what about yourself? Tell me about your uh, your background and what brought you into healthcare. So, um, I. Wanted to be a doctor from a very early age and uh, fortunately was able to wake my way through medical school and um, eventually uh, chose MedPeds as my chosen career path, um, which is a dual training in both pediatrics and internal medicine. I cho chose that um, career because of my strong interest in transition from pediatric to adult care and really feeling like this was the best training for me to be able to, to function there. I was fortunate to get to go to the University of Minnesota, which has an awesome MedPeds program, and then stay on at Gillette Children's, which is a small subspecialty pediatric hospital in uh, the Twin Cities, where we see a lot of patients with rare, complex medical conditions, and I'm now developing the transition from pediatric to adult care there. Well, outstanding. One of my best friends from med school is uh, did his med peds as well, and he uh, it's 
Yeah, likes likes having the background for sure. You see a little bit of everything. And when you're not doing med peds and transitions and care improvement, what do you like to do for fun? Uh, my favorite uh, thing to do is to find the mountains somewhere. So Minnesota would be the perfect state if we also had mountains. But um, either exploring the national parks um, or right in our backyard enjoying those, the lakes of Minnesota as well. Yeah, you all win in the water contest. We got a little more mountains than you all in Colorado, but we don't have we don't have the water, of course. So, well, anyway, uh, yeah, Tori and Katie, uh, welcome. And the reason why we have you here is, you know, we have a, a Copic Medical Foundation which gives grants, and you all uh, participated in that process. And I don't actually participate in the process other than the recording, but I presume you you all uh, were selected for for a grant, or you wouldn't you wouldn't be here. Uh, I did read about the, the issue, and, and Tori, since it sounds like this really is your expertise uh, in both uh, medicine and pediatrics, tell me about uh, the issue of adult primary care providers not having a great experience base, let alone maybe even knowledge base, maybe not even heard of, uh, but let's at least go with uh, lack of experience, even if they know and have heard of these things. Uh, some complex medical conditions in, in childhood. What are some of the things that uh, you're talking about when you, when you use that term? Yeah, so um, childhood onset medical complexity could mean many things. It could mean the rare genetic diagnosis where there are a handful of patients across the United States that have it. It could mean um, a cerebral palsy, spina bifida, um, uh, uh, sickle cell, hemophilia, all sorts of different diagnoses that many of us learned about when we were medical school students and um, maybe even saw a case or two while we were in residency and fellowship training and then um, they become a very small part of our practice moving forward. Um, these patients also have tremendous parents and a support team around them that um, become experts in, in their child's or their own personal diagnosis, and they start to interface with the adult healthcare system. Historically, some of these diagnoses were really only pediatric diagnoses. Um, so thinking back to the, the 70s and 80s when Down syndrome uh, 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 life expectancy was in the 20s um, and now has life expectancies into the 60s or 70s and there are many diagnoses that are now becoming adult diagnoses in fact many of these conditions there are more adults that have the diagnosis than there are pediatric um, patients that have those diagnoses the medical education though has not kept up with uh, with this change in life expectancy in terms of you know training adult doctors to know how to take care of Down syndrome or training adult doctors to know what are the sequelae of spina bifida that you need to think about when a patient becomes 60 or 70 or 80. So the, the goal of our project was really to say what are some of those things that we want all adult doctors to have some familiarity with and um, what could be a, a sustainable resource for them to come and look for, you know, a quick lecture that they could listen to when they find uh, a patient who lands on their schedule that has a G-tube and they've never had to manage it. Now, those are 
great points and, and common diseases in the sense that I know them, I'm familiar with them. And as an internist who doesn't practice pediatrics, but you know, practice uh, for 25 years, I've had many patients whose kids have transitioned uh, from their pediatrician to my office, and, and some of them have had those very conditions you mentioned. And, you know, full disclosure, sometimes I'll scratch my head and think, okay, well, I know about this disease from a, uh, from a, I can take a test and answer a question properly on it, but that's very different than providing good care for somebody with these conditions. And thank goodness, as, also, as you mentioned, the parents are often experts, although it's not their responsibility to be their, their kids' health care providers. So sounds like you're going to kind of bring the doctors up at least to the, to the same level as, as, their, as their parents. And I have a, a big question for you. You're at a national center of excellence. You're at a place to get referrals from certainly all over the region, if not all over the country. What about your colleagues who are in Buckman or who are in, uh, I don't know, uh, Duluth? Well, I guess Duluth's not a small city. Name a small city in Minnesota. I don't, I don't know. Uh, where, where do they go? How do they, how do they care for these patients if they don't have this uh, national center of excellence? Well, that's exactly what our, our project was hoping to be a resource for is that we know that, um, our primary care colleagues have an extraordinarily difficult job. They are also brilliant and take care of really complex, uh, adults all day long, every day. So they have the skills to be able to do this work really well. It's supplementing with the right information. So uh, we were really fortunate as part of our, our premises and goals with the project was to be able to draw upon um, not just the, the folks in the metro area that see a more concentrated amount of these patients, but really draw upon um, providers in rural Minnesota um, who might not have the, the resources um, to to, to be able to care for these patients. So we ended up see, having participants come from 41 different healthcare centers and organizations and across um, several states. So primarily in Minnesota, but we had some folks come from North Dakota and Iowa, Kansas, Michigan, Idaho. So really drawing upon um, uh, the power of the ECHO format. And I'll let Katie kind of talk about why ECHO is such a powerful tool that you can use to disseminate your knowledge. Katie, I think you're up based on based yeah. on that. And I will say I, I read a little bit about ECHO, and it sounds pretty interesting, exciting, and, and we'll put you on the spot here to see how much you know about the origins of ECHO and then maybe some of the core tenets on it and how you're trying to use those. And by the way, you don't have to get all these right because I, I took notes and have it right in front of me. You're, you're just yeah. on off the cuff. Sure. Yeah, so uh, Project ECHO was started almost 10 years ago now, I believe, out of the University of New Mexico by a hepatologist uh, named Dr. Sanji Verora, who did just basically yeah, what Tori um, just discussed, is wanting to be able to reach rural providers to be able to provide excellent care for patients with hepatitis in rural areas who don't have access to drive to large health centers or drive to big cities. Um, so those primary care doctors who are more than able to treat these patients in rural areas, they just might need a little bit of an extra education or help along the way. Um, so ECHO really, that's their all teach, all learn, dissemination of model, all these fancy terms that they kind of use, really trying to get that information out from big centers to rural clinics 
to enable those providers to provide excellent care on topics that they certainly can. All right, you nailed it. That's exactly what, what I read about the model. But here was the question that, that popped in my mind when uh, I was reading this and also when, when Tori, I would say, excessively generously said the primary care providers are brilliant. Uh, I would say that, or at least speak for myself, that we're tenacious. We certainly try, and kind of like a pediatrician, we are the doctor of last resort. So we don't get the option of saying, oh, that's no longer in my field, so I'm not going to help take care of it. So you know, we, we have to seek out those resources. So I go to one of your seminars, and I learn a little bit about management of one of these uh, you know, childhood onset medical complexities, let's say it's the hemophilia, uh, and oh, fine, I kind of know the coagulation cascade, I kind of know where the factors sit, and I kind of know what you told me to do, and then I forget. So who do I use for resources? Are you available? How do you teach me to fish? Uh, just use that metaphor. Absolutely. So. Um, part of it is that the sessions are recorded and available for free for anyone to um, access at any point. So, oh, I remember that session. I want to go back and find it again. You can go back in that way. The second part of ECHO is really, like Katie said, the all teach, all learn methodology. So we know that as primary care docs and um, I think as providers in general, um, you are powerful because of the network you create. And this is a way for um, providers to be able to expand their network and to build relationships. You also have the opportunity in, in the ECHO to present a case of your own, to reach out and say, hey, I'm really struggling with this. Can I pull the group and figure out how I can be doing this better? So. Um, there's the didactic part of an echo session is part one, so learning something. And then really the fun part is bringing a case and getting everyone's perspective on how, how might you approach that? How, how might someone who is in a rural um, area be able to utilize a resource that's maybe an hour away as opposed to four hours away for a patient to get good care? So it's really kind of expanding the network and, and the the, the hive uh, to be able to bounce ideas off of each other and ask good questions and, and build friendships. I've seen a lot of people went into medicine and one of the greatest joys of training for me was collaboration with my colleagues. And I think that's lost and it's not just lost in rural settings, it's lost in urban settings as well for a, for a host of reasons which we won't get into but I encourage you to read about the EMR and the joy suck that thing has been. Uh, but. It, it certainly has been challenging to to collaborate uh, for for a lot of providers, and I think that contributes to dissatisfaction. You don't get those peer peer relationships. So it sounds like that's a kind of a, a, a great thing that this is going to do. Uh, you're right, providers working together, talking about their their training, their experiences, uh, the the sessions they had with you. I think that could be incredibly valuable. That that sounds exciting. And by the way, I, uh, about five minutes ago, I, I couldn't, I mentioned the coagulation cascade. I couldn't diagram that, that thing to save my life. So don't think for a second I actually know the coag cascade anymore. Um, but Tori, you had a point to make. Yeah, I think the other thing is that it's, it's not just drawing upon the expertise of the providers too. 
So our, our sessions were, were pulling folks from across different uh, areas of expertise. So it was providers, but it was also care coordinators and school nurses and um, family members uh, talking about their own experiences. Um, and, and that was such a robust and rich conversation um, to be able to think about, yeah, so here's the like pathophysiology of why that should work. And like, here is the place that you can get it done, but how are we gonna get a patient you know, to go across Minnesota, like what are those resources and having the social workers speak up about, have you thought about this source of funding or that um, was also a really meaningful um, adventure that we all learned um, from. It's because um, medicine is a team sport and it requires a little bit of everyone. Well, it certainly does and the all teach, all learn and knowledge share and that just, it's obviously impossible to think that would be uh, wouldn't be effective and while we're talking about efficacy you know you're in the academic world uh, I'm in the funding world peripherally and you have eyes on you how do you demonstrate that this is something that's working I mean do you look at participation do you look at feedback you probably don't have the resources to do a massive outcomes based uh, randomized trial uh, uh, NIH Hago Fund Tory, but how do you uh, how do you, how do you look at whether you're, for lack of a better word, making it or a phrase and making a difference? So we are really fortunate to have Katie, who is a, a record keeper du jour. Um, so was just incredible at kind of helping us understand what is the impact. So um, it, this was a completely voluntary. Uh, Thing for our participants to come and attend. So one of the things we tracked was how often do, patient, uh, do the attendees come back for more? Um, and we found uh, over half of them came to more sessions um, and, and several of them came to most or all of the sessions. So really using that as a tool of, well, they're not going to come back if they don't think that this is a useful thing. So that, that was um, one session. Uh, or one way that we were tracking things. Two was understanding our scope. So we wanted to make sure that we weren't just, you know, getting people that came from my institution because I bumped into them in the hallway and said, hey, check this out. But really kind of looking at what was the reach geographically um, and across what uh, specialties or um, different uh, areas of training. And then uh, after every session, we of course did a um, uh, a survey that looked at, you know, what are the things that you're going to change as a result of this? Um, people got CME, of course, so that's a requirement of CME, but also using that to kind of help us understand how we could um, draw a bigger crowd. And then the last piece is we kind of capped this ECHO project off with a hybrid full-day learning experience. Um, so here was a, a time when we brought folks across Minnesota uh, together, um, either virtually or in person, to be more focused um, and thoughtful about, here's what you've learned, how can we actually make a change in your own practice? So that was our Transition Learning Summit, um, our first annual, and we had over 90 participants uh, come together and talk about transition for a full day. 
um, which had never happened in the state of Minnesota before. So that was exciting. And then uh, we were fortunate enough that the Minnesota Department of Health felt like this was such a valuable resource um, that they have continued funding um, to do another year of ECHO and a second annual transition summit um, here at 2023-24. Katie, you want to add on to that? What metrics you're tracking, maybe some of the things you're seeing, if there's things you can share, and if you're going to plan on putting together any sort of, uh, and perhaps it was out there, I just didn't find it, uh, a project-specific website that shows some of these metrics, you know, maybe a, a pretty pie chart or a graph. I'm an absolute sucker for graphics, so uh, you, you could probably hook people as simple-minded as me with some, with some good graphics. So what are you going to do in that realm? Yeah, um, you know, I would guess we don't really have a website where we put this information. We did review it. We have, like, um, our faculty, core faculty groups that we review with kind of the people that steer the project. But I guess we didn't necessarily like put it out there or publish it or anything like that. Um, I will just add like the one way I am able to track all of this information is like the project or the Echo Institute gives you this iApple platform and so that's how we're able to pull all of this different data, um, like credentials of individuals, where they're coming from and different things like that. So that's an awesome tool to track all of this data. I'm trying to think of the other thing I guess I was going to say is um, that it is helpful like for reporting back for your funders um, and that was able to help us get like our second year grant because you're able to measure and have like tangible information to show that this was impactful and reached and I think we were surprised how much it did reach different organizations and even different states. It was just crazy the data we saw. Well, that's favorable, and I can tell you that just from the little bit of work I did looking at the at the Echo website, the, the guy from New Mexico, and uh, looking at your presentation you gave to the Kovic Foundation, uh, I was blown away with how powerful this this sounded like it would be. And it and it, if I'm not mishearing you, it sounds as if you're also thinking, "Wow, this actually is reaching people." And it is having a having a positive impact. So uh, kudos to you all. And and as we as we wrap things up here, uh, Tori, maybe I'll give you the final word. If uh, there's a potential funder listening or the Copic Foundation for Next Go, uh, what's the pitch? How do you uh, keep these people hooked? And we'll put stuff in the show notes to find out who you are and so on. And and uh, if, we, if it generates any leads, uh, good good for you all. But uh, why don't you wrap it up for us? So I, I think, at least when it comes to transition, uh, it is often thought of as a very niche field um, that I, I have created this, this world of, of uh, I think, the best career there is um, in medicine of, of caring for young people and their families as, as they're graduating into adulthood. But we all do transition every single day. Um, certainly from the pediatric side of things, you're, you're trying to help folks be as independent as possible uh, from the moment they're born. Uh, that's what you're, you're walking, working on those milestones for with patients and, um, and moving on into teenage years, et cetera. But our adult colleagues are doing this every day, all day long, seeing patients that have genetic diagnoses or rare diagnoses. So this is the work of, of all of us. Um, and I am just so thrilled to, to really get to be an advocate for it. Um, 
And I think there's so much to learn from all sorts of different kinds of medicine. Some of our most exciting uh, talks were, you know, our speech therapists coming in and talking about how, how do you work with someone who uses a communication device? So not something that we typically think about in medicine. Um, what about ableism and what does that mean as a provider? So um, I encourage everyone to, to seek out um, and just watch for it over the next month of, of when, when does transition come to be? Um, and then, of course, we are restarting our ECHO for season two starting um, October 9th. You can go to the Gillette Children's uh, website and search for transition, and you'll, you'll find it um, to be able to sign up for our next sessions. We welcome anyone from across the country, um, and we will just continue to advocate for more equitable, trauma-informed transition care for as long as is needed, which I anticipate will be a lifetime. Um, and of course, I couldn't uh, uh, go on any further without saying this is only possible because of incredible patients and families. Um, so I just thank every one of my patients for you know, sharing their story with me and, and putting a little bit of trust in me that I will uh, continue to advocate on their behalf. Well, Tori and Katie, thank you for joining us on Within Normal Limits. It sounds like you all were a great choice for uh, some some foundation grant uh, money. It uh, sounds like fabulous work, certainly noble work, necessary work, and probably uh, underappreciated work. So wait, we'll, we'll let's try to get the word out there. Thanks for what you're doing, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. Hi, this is Dr. Susan Scambati, a colorectal surgeon and medical director of Copic, thanking you for being a listener. We hope you find Within Normal Limits to be interesting and informative as we at Copic continue with new ways to bring you content relevant to our mission. Please email us at wnlpodcast at copic.com with show ideas or topics you would like to see addressed in future episodes of Within Normal Limits navigating medical risk. Also, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so you don't miss any of our content. And while you're at it, please give us a rating if you enjoyed our show.